On the evening of July the 2nd, 1969, two men are swimming in an open-air pool in the grounds of a private house in East Sussex, England. Only one of those men will get out of the water alive. The other will be found dead at the bottom of the pool. The swimmer who dies is Brian Jones, until recently, guitarist with one of the biggest rock bands in the world, the Rolling Stones. The other swimmer in the pool that night is a man called Frank Thorogood. It's hard to imagine two more different people. Jones is a supremely talented musician, flamboyant, intelligent, beautiful, and adored. Thorogood is a down-to-earth builder from North London, employed by Jones to renovate the country home he has recently bought, Cotchford Farm. Thorogood is working class, whereas Jones comes from a well-to-do middle-class family in genteel Cheltenham, his father an aeronautical engineer, his mother a piano teacher and church organist. We will never know for certain what happens that night between the two men, only that Brian Jones drowns. And Frank Thorogood is the last person to see him alive. The coroner will determine that Brian Jones's death was accidental. But there are many gaps in the official version of events. The facts are muddled. The people who were there either change their stories or keep silent about crucial details. We can't even say for sure who was there. It's a death that will spark decades of wild speculation and intriguing conspiracy theories. Until one day in 1993, when Frank Thorogood lies dying in a North London hospital. He is visited by a close friend who claims he hears Thorogood make a startling confession. It was me that did, Brian. I just finally snapped. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups. This show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Frank Thorogood, of the words he allegedly spoke as he lay dying in a North London hospital. But it's also the story of Brian Jones, founding member of the Rolling Stones. It's about his hedonistic life and his tragic death. It's about unanswered questions, it's about the lies people tell and the secrets people keep, all to make sure the past stays hidden. It's about one of the biggest rock and roll bands in the world and the biggest rock and roll mystery ever. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's 1969, the last year of the swinging 60s. Throughout the decade, British groups like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles have spearheaded a revolution in popular music. The sugary smooth tunes of dance bands and crooners have been rudely pushed aside by something raw, aggressive, and sexy. Rock and roll. Heavily influenced by the music of Black artists from the American South, rock and roll is fueled by the blues and powered by a driving beat. It's loud, rhythmic, and impossible to ignore. Parents hate it. Teenagers go wild for it. Other bands present a clean living image. The Rolling Stones strut onto stage as scruffy, dangerous rebels, the ones who girls might dream of dating but would never take home to meet mom and dad. When the Rolling Stones play, the screams of their adoring fans drown out their music. It's an exciting time to be alive. It's not just music that's changing. Fashion, centered around the boutiques of Carnaby Street, has flowered into an exuberant celebration of dandyism, where almost anything goes. The wide availability of the contraceptive pill has brought about a sexual revolution. Free love is there for the taking. Other pills have heralded a different kind of awakening. The doors of perception have been opened. Artists and performers are experimenting with drugs like LSD, amphetamines, marijuana and cocaine, both to push the boundaries of their creativity and also to help them deal with the rigors of life on the road. In England, London is the epicenter of all these cultural, artistic, social, psychological, and sexual upheavals. And it is out of this whirlwind that the Rolling Stones emerge, with Brian Jones as storm rider in chief. In 1962, Brian Jones places an ad in Jazz News, inviting musicians to audition for a new R&B band in the back room of a pub near Leicester Square. He is the one who decides who is in and who isn't. He is the one who calls up promoters and TV execs, securing gigs and appearances when the band is starting out. He is the one whose consummate musicianship can transform any track into that distinctive Rolling Stones sound. His love of the blues shapes the band's musical direction. His vision for the band propels them into stardom, and his star, for a time, burns brighter than any of the others. Brighter even than lead singer Mick Jagger's. Because, in the beginning at least, Brian ruthlessly makes sure of that, even if it means he has to turn his guitar up on stage to drown out Mick's vocals. He will do anything to make sure he is the one the fans adore. And they do, especially the female fans, who see him as sensitive and charming. By 1969, seven years after founding the band, Brian Jones has the world at his feet. 
he has made the transition from a talented musician to a notorious celebrity, partying with the stars and stalked by the paparazzi. He lives the rock and roll lifestyle to excess. By the time of his death, Brian has fathered six illegitimate children by six different mothers. The first three were born before he was 19. His alcohol and drug intake has led to his split with the band. His band. In recent months, he has often turned up to rehearsals incoherent, often too drunk or stoned to play the guitar. It's rumored it gets so bad, the other stones don't even bother to switch the mic on when he's playing his part. Even fellow Rolling Stone Keith Richards could see Brian was heading for trouble. There are some people who you know aren't going to get old, he will later claim. Brian and I agreed that he, Brian, wouldn't live very long. I remember saying, he'll never make 30, man. And he said, I know. McJagger will put it more succinctly. Keith and I took drugs, but Brian took too many drugs of the wrong kind. By 1968, the year before his death, there are signs even Brian is tiring of the excesses he has so eagerly embraced up till now. It's now that he buys Cotchford Farm in rural Sussex as a refuge from the temptations and turmoil of London. But the move only opens up more of a distance between Brian and the rest of the band. It doesn't seem to curtail his partying to any meaningful degree either. Things come to a head when the band fires him in June 1969, less than a month before his death. Fulfilling Keith Richards' prophecy, Brian Jones is just 27 years old when he dies. Yes, along with Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, and Amy Winehouse, Brian is a member of the infamous 27 Club. But perhaps more than any of those others, the circumstances of Brian's death remain clouded in mystery to this day. Let's go back to the night Brian dies. It's not easy to piece together what happened because everyone who was there tells a different story. According to the official police version of events, there are three people present at Cotchford Farm that night, besides Brian Jones. The three people are Frank Thorogood, who we have already met. With him is Thorogood's friend Janet Lawson, a registered nurse, and Brian's current girlfriend, 22-year-old Swedish student and dancer, Anna Wallin. The police narrative is drawn from these three witnesses' accounts. Frank is Brian's builder, but he's also living on site in an apartment above Brian's garage. He goes home to his wife in London on the weekends, but what Frank gets up to during the week is his own business. At the time of Brian's death, Janet Lawson has been staying with Frank Thorogood for several days. On the night in question, everyone has been drinking. Earlier, Brian sent Frank to the local pub to buy booze. He came back with a haul of vodka, whiskey, brandy, and wine. The four of them ate dinner together, a meat pie prepared by Frank Thorogood. After dinner, Brian and his girlfriend Anna stay in the main house watching TV, while Frank and Janet Lawson go back to the apartment above the garage. Later, around 10.15, Brian calls on Frank and Janet and asks them if they want to join him for a drink at the house. Brian lights the way back with a flashlight. Its feeble beam wobbles in the darkness, as he is pretty unsteady on his feet. When they get to the house, Brian and Frank hit the spirits. Brian has brandy, Frank vodka. Brian's speech becomes garbled. He apologizes, saying he's already taken some sleeping tablets. But he doesn't want to sleep. He wants to go for a swim. 
The pool lights are on. Vapor rises from the warm water. As a nurse, Janet Lawson is dead set against the idea of swimming, given the amount of alcohol and other substances they've consumed. But the other three don't listen to her. They head off to change into swimwear. Anna Wallen comes out first with Brian's dogs, Luther and Emily. The dogs settle down at the poolside as she slips into the water. Anna pushes off against the side, immersing her shoulders. The water feels warm against her skin. Brian and Frank join her at the pool. They're laughing, but not in a relaxed or good-natured way. It's that edgy male banter that's based on needling and provoking. All fun and games until someone gets hurt. Janet Lawson is watching from the poolside. She's concerned about how drunk the men are, especially Brian, who looks like he's going to lose his balance on the springboard. Frank reaches out to help him, but Brian lurches forward and enters the pool with a belly flop. He quickly recovers and is soon swimming confidently in the deep end. Frank gets in at the shallow end. Brian is a strong swimmer, acrobatic even, a little bit prone to showing off, but he's also asthmatic. His asthma is so bad, he always has four inhalers, or squirters as he calls them, one at each corner of the pool, in case he has an asthma attack while swimming. Always, except for tonight, it seems. Brian asks Janet, the only one not in the pool, if she will go inside to get him an inhaler. While she's inside, the phone rings. She answers. It's Ferana who climbs out of the pool and joins Janet inside to take the call. Now, it's just Frank Thorogood and Brian Jones in the pool. Soon after, Frank hauls himself out of the water to go into the house for a cigarette, leaving Brian alone, making Frank Thorogood the last person to see Brian Jones alive. The question is, is he alive when Frank leaves him in the pool? If you believe the account Frank Thorogood gives the police in 1969, then the answer is yes. But both Anna Wallen and Janet Lawson will later reveal details that cast doubt on this version of events. Many years later, both Anna Wallen and Janet Lawson will claim that Frank's hands are shaking when he comes into the kitchen after his swim. The shaking is so bad, he has trouble lighting the cigarette. In Janet Lawson's words, Frank came in in a lather. His hands were shaking. He was in a terrible state. I thought the worst almost straight away and went to the pool to check. But according to her 1969 account, Janet does not rush out to the pool but hands Frank a towel before going back to the pool for no specific reason. Certainly not because she thinks anything is wrong. It's then that she sees Brian Jones spread-eagled on the bottom of the pool, face down at the deep end. He's not moving. The surface of the water is like glass. In this account, it is only now that she fears the worst. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It might seem strange that Janet Lawson doesn't jump in the pool immediately to try to save Brian. But she's not a strong swimmer, and she's still feeling woozy from the wine she drank earlier. There's another possible reason for her wooziness. Frank didn't mention it to anyone, and he certainly didn't tell the police, but he laced the pie he made with cannabis. Maybe this is nothing more than a prank. Whatever his reason, the effect was to make everyone there at Cotchford Farm that night feel more than a little out of it. Now, though, Janet is suddenly alert. Her heart pounds with panic. She shouts out to Anna, who's upstairs in her bedroom with her window open. Something's happened to Brian, is what Anna says she hears. And yet, according to Frank, it's Anna who raises the alarm. In his account, he goes back out to the pool after getting a cigarette. Anna's coming out of the house at the same time. She gets to the pool first, turns to him and says, he's lying on the bottom. Frank claims that he gets into the water straight away with Anna. The two of them struggle together to get Brian out, his body lifeless in the water. They are eventually helped by Janet once they have got Brian to the side. Anna's 1969 account is significantly different from Frank's. She says she dives in on her own at first and gets Brian off the bottom of the pool by herself. It's only afterwards that Frank joins her to help pull him out. Although neither Janet or Anna say this at the time to the police, they will later claim that Frank hangs back, almost as if he is reluctant to help. In her 1999 book, The Murder of Brian Jones, Anna Wallen recounts how she desperately calls out to Frank. Frank, please help me! But there's no urgency to Frank's reaction, claims Anna. According to her account, he just strolls casually towards the pool where Anna's struggling to keep Brian afloat, terrified that she'll lose her grip on him and he will sink to the bottom again. Eventually, after what seems like forever, Frank slips into the pool and helps her. And in 2008, Janet Lawson will tell investigative journalist Scott Jones how she discovers Brian on the bottom of the pool and calls out for help. She too is struck by something odd, suspicious even, in Frank's response. In Janet's account, Frank initially does nothing, so she carries on shouting for him as she runs towards the house. Eventually, Frank comes out from the kitchen and runs towards the pool where he dives in. But Janet Lawson is puzzled. She hasn't said anything about Brian being in the pool. So how did Frank know to go straight there? Between them, Anna Wallen, Frank Thorogood, and Janet Lawson lift Brian out of the water and lay him face up on the poolside. Janet's first aid knowledge kicks in. She places a towel under Brian's head and teaches Anna how to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation while she administers CPR, firmly massaging his chest. Meanwhile, Frank goes inside to call an ambulance. The emergency call is logged at just after midnight. Anna claims she feels Brian's hand grip hers while they are trying to revive him, suggesting he is still alive. However, Janet Lawson will tell the police that it was obvious to her straight away that Brian was dead when they lifted him from the pool. 
Frank will also describe his body as limp in the water. The two women give up trying to resuscitate Brian after about 15 minutes, as Janet is unable to detect a pulse. An ambulance arrives soon after midnight. It's followed shortly by the first police officer on the scene, Police Constable Albert Evans from nearby Hartfield. PC Evans sees the paramedics administering resuscitation to a man lying by the edge of the pool. By now, a local doctor has been called out and is supervising the resuscitation, but there's nothing that can be done to save him. Brian Jones, founding member of the Rolling Stones, is officially dead. Perhaps that is all we can be sure of, that Brian Jones died in the swimming pool of his house in East Sussex on the night of July 2nd, 1969. Because we have to accept that there are significant discrepancies between the three witnesses' accounts. Not only that, two of the witnesses will significantly change their stories later. So it's impossible to be absolutely certain about every detail of what happened that night. And if we can't be certain about the details, how can we be sure of anything? There may be nothing sinister behind these inconsistencies. It may just show how hard it is to get to the truth. Perhaps it would be more suspicious if all their accounts were exactly the same, as if they had learned them from a script. Memory is subjective. We all create a version of the past that reflects us in the best possible light. If you're tired and your head's buzzing from shock or too much alcohol and dope, you may go along with what someone else is saying because they seem to remember things so much more clearly than you. Then again, maybe someone's lying. In a 2008 article in the Daily Mail, Janet Lawson puts it bluntly. There, she describes her statement to the police after Brian's death as a pack of lies. She claims that a policeman suggested most of what ended up in her statement. It was four or five in the morning. She was exhausted and traumatized. She didn't know what she was saying. And she thought she would get another chance to set the record straight when she wasn't so confused. But she never gets the opportunity to clarify or correct her original statement. Not until nearly 40 years later. By then, it will be too late. By then, the file on Brian Jones's death is closed. Brian's girlfriend, Anna Wallen, will also go back on her original statement. In her case, 30 years after she made it. This is what she writes in The Murder of Brian Jones. I didn't lie to the police who questioned me afterwards, but I didn't tell them the whole truth. I know that I let Brian down, but I was afraid. I felt I was spiraling into a dark and lonely pit of depression. I knew that Brian's drowning was not an accident. She tells how Frank sidles up to her as they are about to go into the police station on the day after Brian's death. He urges her, don't forget to tell them it was Brian who wanted me to come down to you, not me. What he's referring to is the moment when Brian came up to the apartment above the garage and invited Frank and Janet down for drinks. When Anna Wallen tries to work out why Frank is so keen to stress this point, the only conclusion she can come up with is that he is trying to address the question of premeditation, which, of course, is crucial in a charge of first-degree murder. 
it's as if he's trying to prepare the ground for a lesser charge of manslaughter. Put simply, if he only went down to the house because Brian Jones insisted, he could not have had it in mind to kill him. But that's not all Anna claims Frank said to her before her police interview. Just think about what you say to the police, he allegedly tells her. The only thing you need to tell them is that Brian had been drinking and his drowning was an accident. There's no need for you to tell the police that you saw me in the kitchen. Just tell them that we pulled Brian out of the pool together. It's interesting to note that in his own statement to the police, Frank is at high pains to mention how much Jones has been drinking. He repeatedly brings it up, at one point describing Brian as a heavy drinker. That's certainly consistent with Brian's history of excess. However, the pathology report will find a comparatively low amount of alcohol in his blood. Just 140 milligrams per 100 milliliter, which is the equivalent of about four and a half pints of beer. Frank will also draw repeated attention to Brian's asthma, stating, I have noticed during the past couple of days that his asthma has been bad and he has suffered from hay fever. There's no reason to doubt the truth of this. But it's the things that Frank doesn't mention that are telling. He doesn't say anything about his own relationship with Brian Jones, which, as we will discover, was difficult, to say the least. What Frank does say is this. If I had thought he was in any danger, I would not have left him on his own. Whereas in 1999, Anna Wallen offers a different opinion. There was no doubt in my mind. Frank had killed Brian. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. As Brian's inert body lies on the poolside, we can imagine the shock that everyone who was there that evening must have felt. Their minds are reeling with panic. For now, adrenaline keeps them going, cutting through the haze of drink and drugs that has gotten them to this point. They tell themselves it was an accident, a horrible, tragic accident. But they know this is no ordinary death. And they know that they will soon be in the spotlight, having to answer for everything they did that night. Police are everywhere now, including officers from the drug squad. And before too long, newspaper reporters are snooping around. Overnight, the news gets out, and Brian Jones's death rocks the world. The story makes headlines on both sides of the Atlantic, in fact, across every continent. After all, the Rolling Stones are a hugely influential cultural phenomenon with millions of adoring fans worldwide. In England, the Guardian newspaper leaves its readers in no doubt what killed Brian, leading with the headline, Jones drowned while drunk and drugged. 
The myth of the tragic, drug-addicted rock star has claimed another victim. When he hears the news, Jim Morrison writes a moving poem in Brian's honor. Ode to LA while thinking of Brian Jones, deceased. I hope you went out smiling like a child into the cool remnant of a dream, writes Morrison. It's worth noting that there is no hint of murder in any of the newspaper accounts. That will only come out years later, after Frank Thorogood's death. Of the three people we know are with Brian Jones the night he dies, two will later change their accounts of what happened. The only one who will stick with their original version to their dying day is Frank Thorogood. Or perhaps, not quite to his dying day. Because if you believe the friend who was with Thorogood just before his death in 1993, even Frank goes back on the statement he gave to police in 1969. And in the most shocking way imaginable. This friend isn't just anyone. It's someone very close to the Rolling Stones. A man called Tom Keylock. In 1969, Keylock works for the Rolling Stones organization as driver, minder, and general fixer. His official title is tour manager. He's a big man, thick-set, broad-shouldered. An ex-paratrooper who saw action at the Battle of Arnhem in World War II. He's disciplined and always in control. Some might say controlling. Not much spooks Tom. In photographs, he's seen wearing stylish dark suits and a pair of heavy black-framed glasses, looking like a dark-haired, burly version of Michael Caine. It's at the other end of the spectrum to the Stones' flamboyant, foppish style, but it's still a look that epitomizes London in the swinging 60s. That contrast sums up their relationship. The Stones are the good-time dandies, decadent and out of control, leaving a trail of chaos wherever they go. Food fights, drug raids, messy love affairs. Keylock is the button-down disciplinarian who not only drives them around, but also cleans up their messes. According to the official version of events, Keylock is not present at Cotchford Farm at the time of Brian Jones's death. But some will claim he knows more than anyone else what really happened that night. And that for whatever reason, he plays a key role in concealing the truth. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet the man who holds the key to the whole mystery, the appropriately named Tom Keylock. We plunge deeper into the dark side of Brian Jones and pick over the quarrel that may have led to his death we visit Frank Thorogood as he lies dying in hospital. We ask, was there a cover-up and why? And explore whether someone very close to the Rolling Stones had a motive for murdering Brian Jones. For more information on Frank Thorogood and the death of Brian Jones, amongst the many sources we used, we found Brian Jones, Who Killed Christopher Robin? The Final Truth by Terry Rawlings, the Murder of Brian Jones by Anna Wallen, and the works of investigative journalist Scott Jones particularly helpful to our research. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. 
Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Roger Morris. Edited by Rob Plummer. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound design by Tom Pink and Matias Torres. Mix master by Keon Ryan Morgan. 